This is Philosophy Takes on the News. Hello and welcome to Philosophy Takes on the News. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording on the morning of Thursday, the 17th of November, 2022. This is the week that saw world leaders gather in Bali for the G20 summit. The US elections gave us further results and Donald Trump announced his intention to run for the presidency in 2024. And footballers and coaching squads from around the world arrived in Qatar for the 2022 FIFA Men's World Cup, which kicks off this coming weekend. This week is a special episode. We're going to devote today's episode to the FIFA Men's World Cup. So we may discuss the football action itself, but we'll be asking a big question. Should we watch it? And from that, we'll also see what else we get on to, as always. The World Cup does conjure up so many treasured images, but also times of heartache. Seeing the winners and the losers, the tears on the pitch and in the stands, the realisation that those you've put so much trust and faith in are just hopeless mortals with feet made of clay. Which, of course, brings me to this week's guests. Joining me today, we have a bumper panel. Uh, hoping to net a few is Tom McClellan, lecturer in Cambridge History and Philosophy of Science Department. Hi, Tom. Hi there. Hello. Glad to be here. Uh, keeping it tight at the back and shouting instructions is Lucy O'Brien, Professor of Philosophy at UCL. Hi, Lucy. Hi, Simon. Like your double entendres. <laughs> Our wizard in the hole, occasionally playing as a false number nine, is Gerald Lang, Associate Professor in Philosophy at the University of Leeds. Hey, Gerald. Hi, Simon. Hi, team. Uh, and our midfield general is Martin O'Neill. No, not that one. Uh, who's Professor of Philosophy at York. Hi, Martin. Hi, Simon. Hi, everyone. Uh, great to have all of you with us, particularly you, Martin, because it's your first time on the pod. Okay, so let's get to our main item then. The main question I have is, should I watch the 2022 World Cup? And I'm going to do the introduction for, for this. Um, so I love the World Cup. I also love the Euros. In fact, I'm sitting here right now wearing my Portugal Euros 2004 shirt. Um, the World Cup's been a constant through my life. One of my treasured childhood memories is being held aloft like an all-conquering hero in the school playground because I was the first in the school to finish the Mexico 1986 World Cup Panini sticker album. I still have that album and often I get it out to gaze adoringly at Pierre Litbarski's face. Uh, that was the final sticker I needed that cost me a hundred swaps, but it was worth it. Um, when the World Cup comes along, I watch every match and I read avidly about it. But I've decided I'm not going to watch any games this year. In fact, just before we started recording, I, I said to everyone else, I don't even know who's in the England squad. Sports events often have their downside. One can think of the Russian World Cup in 2018, for example. But the Qatar World Cup seems symbolic of the descent that we're on. And there are some simply heinous things that have been done to create it. The migrant workers who've built the stadia and infrastructure have been treated appallingly, and some have died as a result of terrible working conditions, according to Amnesty and many other agencies. Qatar has an awful record on human rights anyway. Uh, we can also worry about how the World Cup was awarded in the first place. The whole thing seems rotten, and I don't want to have anything to do with it. 
But am I right? What good will come from me and perhaps a few other people not watching it? Do sport and politics mix or should they be kept separate? Is this just comfortable and comforting Western prejudice against a different culture and an event that may do some good in the long term? Lots of questions, uh, but let's start with that first one. Should I watch the World Cup? Gerald, you said you wanted to come in first. Yeah, so um, it's an important question, and I think the moral pinch points for this World Cup are pretty obvious. It's a highly illiberal regime. The migrant workers have been treated uh, very, very badly. It's. I, I can see why you say it's left a, a bad taste in your mouth and you want to have nothing to do with it. But I, I think the question is this. If you do watch the World Cup, what does that say about you? Does it mean that you can't affirm criticism of the way, you know, the, the way this World Cup was prepared for, the mistreatment of the migrant workers? Does it mean that you're very relaxed about, about the illiberal regime at Qatar, the... Um, the prosecution of, of gays, and in fact, any type of um, sex outside marriage. I don't think it does. I mean, it's not obvious to me that you lack the elbow room to uphold that kind of criticism. So that, that that's a central question for me. And uh, I mean, perhaps there are two ways of looking at this, two, two models, and that might be a slightly pompous word to use uh, in, in the context, but, but I'll, I'll use it anyway. So, I mean, one model might be a you might call it a recoiling model. You see what's happened, you want to have nothing to do with it, you recoil from it. That's what the morally good person does. Another model is more strategic, I suppose, by not watching it along with millions of other people, we can do something to make it less lucrative for the Qatari regime. Advertisers may be less happy if viewing figures are down. I think that's pretty unlikely, actually. But um but anyway, that's the plan, and there might be a, there might be another way of looking at it too. Where if you do watch it, then you, you're you're somehow entering into a kind of complicitous relationship with all the processes that brought it about. But I I don't think that's very compelling. You're not. You had nothing to do with it. Uh, you're just watching football. It doesn't mean that you're endorsing all of the processes that brought these matches into your living room, and if you condemn the abuses i don't think that's undermined by the fact you watch it you can do other things for example so a facebook friend said that he would watch it but give two pounds to amnesty international for every game he watched that's doing something um and that that thing isn't undermined by the fact he's watching it in the first place so that's how i feel about it i'm we'll see how many matches i'll actually get round to watching it's an odd time of year and it might be less of a festival atmosphere because not everyone will be watching it but um i i don't think my opposition to the things that you're opposed to simon are undermined simply by the fact i'm likely to be watching at least some of it so that's how i feel about it great thanks gerald anyone else uh, perhaps i can just i mean i i i really agree with gerald that there's different ways of not watching it <laughs> So one of it might be that you're trying to be part of a kind of solidarity movement, particularly with LGBT interests. And one way of doing that is saying, 
I'm not going to watch it. I'm disgusted by this. And that's part of sort of signaling and creating a, a movement of solidarity. I mean, so, and I, th- I think that's a, that's something that, but sometimes it is hard to create solidarity movements and make certain kinds of sort of membership costs <laughs> like essential there are other ways of belonging to the solidarity movement and there's ways of saying you know that this particular price of entry that you've given partly because it's so differentially costly to different people you know lots of people football is so sports generally can be so critical to someone's conception of their life their year their so if you make the price of entry to this movement not watching any world cup then then i think you a you're just you're 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 well, people are paying more or less depending on their particular kind of passion and the way in which these sport can, sport can really structure people's uh, people's lives so I, I guess picking up some of these issues around around complicity and you know the, the possibility at the same time both of watching this but also of uh, of trying to make clear um sort of one's opposition to various various things about the Qatari regime and about the way that this this world cup came to be so i suppose another position so in our house we're we're adopting what might be a sort of unstable middle course so i'd, I'd be interested to know whether whether this kind of stands up or not so i've got young kids they're really into football um, we're going to watch it, but what we've decided is we're not going to buy anything at all with a, a sort of Qatari 22, uh, Qatari World Cup 22 badge on it. So, like you, Simon, you know the Panini sticker buying and and collecting has been you know a big thing in my life when it was a, when I was a kid, and it's been a big thing in, in the lives of my my children over the last few few tournaments so there'll be no panini there'll be no branded footballs there'll be no no sort of sports where we're going to absolutely sort of minimize any 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 sort of purchases of anything that's got anything to do with this where we're, we're sort of going to do a sort of limited consumer boycott but still watch the um you know the games which after all are going out on you know free to air tv so I'd, I'd be interested to know whether whether that seems like like a, a stable position, so it, it, it's not it's not the recoil uh, that Gerald described, where you think this is just so appalling. I don't, you know, I want nothing to do with it at all. But uh, but on the other hand, it, it, it's not the maybe slightly uh, more 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 demanding uh, position that that Simon's taking. Uh, so sorry, it's not it's not recoil. On the other hand, it, it's not the it's not a completely strategic view of just sort of. Uh, thinking, well, you know, you know, will this really have a large impact? I'm sure our our panini purchases won't won't really make make much difference at all. There's something symbolic about that kind of consumer boycott, but it, it it's not going the the full way. So I'm, I'm quite open to the thought that that we might be completely uh, inconsistent or or incoherent in doing that. But but I wonder whether that's a stable position. I, I, I'm I'm with Martin on that. It seems to me like FIFA have been motivated by money, so the best way to kick them where it hurts is to make the world cup less profitable than they were hoping so not buying world cup related products seems like a pretty effective way of doing that you might hope that by protesting in some way the people at fifa will grow a conscience or something but that's a bit optimistic instead it seems like the best way to to make sure they make better decisions in the future is to actually 
influence the single bottom line and alter how profitable the World Cup is. Um, but then again, it seems like a lot of what we pay for nowadays, we don't pay for with money, we pay for with attention. And whether you like it or not, you're going to absorb all the advertising material that's on the telly when you watch the game. And that will in some way indirectly influence you know, purchases in the future. And that more subtle um, financial incentive is a bit trickier to to do something about. So that's what I worry about. Yeah, Gerald? Yeah, so I think, yeah, th- th- these are interesting thoughts. I mean, I think it's not incoherent because, and, and I think what Lucy's remarks brought out was that the, the kind of convention involved here and signaling is involved. So what you're doing, uh, refraining from, well, you know, either watching the matches or from buying the merchandise is that you're signaling to other people that you feel a certain way about something, about these various abuses, solidarity with the gay community, so on and so forth. That's fine. And it actually it takes me back to something we were talking about months ago, Simon. It's the, it's the wave of symbolic protests that arose after the Russian tanks rolled into Ukraine. There was a kind of spate of cancellations People were ending their associations with Russian sports people, Russian musicians, and so on. And it seemed to me at the time that the reason they were doing this was to kind of send signals to other people that they take this invasion seriously. Well, we should all have taken the invasion seriously. But what you can say if you condemn the Russian invasion is to say that you can condemn the Russian invasion. You just use the words, the moral words condemning the Russian invasion. It seems that we've reached a point in the culture where you've got to do something else in order to make that condemnation sincere, to uphold it as a condemnation that other people can take seriously. And perhaps this idea of symbolic sacrifice is at the heart of that. I'm not quite sure why this has arisen. I I guess it has old roots but it may have been kind of crystallized and reshaped and sharpened by the habits uh, we've developed of being in touch with each other on social media and so on. So yeah, we take a stand in ways that then join some community of solidarity or a community of condemnation. And there's something to be said for that. There's something to be said for doing this kind of thing. We go and marches together we carry placards together, we, we fall silent together in certain ways. They have their place. But I think we oversell them if we think that anyone who's not joining in doesn't really take any of this stuff seriously. I think that would be a really ungenerous reaction to have. I think links up to something else in our culture. We're a pretty condemnatory culture. We do like condemning people. We like scolding people. And it'd be pretty easy to scold someone for watching a World Cup match, because it can be very tempting to watch a World Cup match if you're really into football. And isn't it fun to condemn people uh, for not doing the things that we think they should be doing? That's not all that's going on, Hmm. let me hasten to add. But it's some of what's going on. And I think it's a pretty ugly part of our culture. Yeah, so just uh, on that that particular thought, Gerald, thanks, everyone. So, yeah, so, I, so I've been thinking about this. I didn't, didn't include it in the in the general intro. So, so if I don't want to watch the World Cup, does that mean, does that entail or imply that then I have to judge other people for watching the, the World Cup or indeed condemn them? And I don't, don't think it does, right? So certainly 
I don't feel comfortable about watching any of the World Cup games, right, because of what's what's going on. But I certainly wouldn't want to adopt the position of of condemning or judging other people. In fact, you know, I've been mean, so thinking about uh, the the actual players who are out there. Um, you know, I feel very. I mean, clearly that you know they're in a very difficult position. The players, the coaching staff, whoever, because this might be. You know, it's 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 you know one tournament every four years. For some of them, this will be the only time they ever get to play in a World Cup or go to it um, because of, you know, their playing career, because of the country they're in. Um, and so I certainly wouldn't want to, you know, deprive them of that opportunity and judge them for doing it. Though if anyone did pull out, then obviously that, that for, for particular reasons, that might be laudable. And so, and so the same thing goes with uh, all of my good friends on this podcast who are going to watch World Cup games, right? So... I think I think someone who just in a very relaxed way watches these World Cup games and says, "Oh, don't worry about all of that other stuff; it doesn't matter." Then I'm I'm a little bit worried about that. Well, people who feel conflicted and then do something, as Martin was explaining, right? So, because I know you know following him on Facebook and and uh, and Twitter, how excited he and the kids get. Uh, every tournament about the Panini sticker album, how many swaps they've got, and putting out a big call for who's got, you know, we've got 20 Harry Canes. Can we please spot them for whoever it is, some obscure Romanian footballer? I mean, that, that stuff really matters to Martin and, and his family, right? So, the, I mean, that's a sacrifice. I know I know this. So, so those sort of things I think are important. Um, it, 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 uh, yeah, so I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't be in a position of judging or condemning anyone. Anyway. It, it, it's a very strange that. sacrifice of, of not spending literally hundreds of pounds just to just to fill a sort of uh, a, a kind of flimsy uh, paper album with with pictures of the footballers. But um, I, I think Simon, your your uh, what you were saying there raises some interesting questions as well about what we take to be the responsibility of the participants. Mm. Um, and yeah. of the players and coaches and people in the media and so on who, who are much more directly involved um, in this. So uh, many of you will have seen a, a very interesting interview with, with Jurgen Klopp, where, where Klopp sort of was really kind of quite, quite on the attack against the media for some of the questions he was being asked about, you know, would he be watching the games? Would he be going out there, et cetera? You know, saying that actually that, that this had been a kind of failure of the broader public political culture, if you like, earlier on, that, that there'd already been these errors made by political institutions, made by, you know, the, the governments of countries, by by the uh, football associations of, of different countries and allowing things to get to this point. And that it was too easy, he thought, then to to look to load some some kind of particular responsibility on on players or coaches or those those more directly involved. And I don't know, I, I kind of saw the force of that, but but at the same time, it it seemed a little bit a bit too easy at, at the same time to to want to to kind of offload any any sort of responsibility there. So I, I wonder what what people thought of of that kind of uh, position that. That Klopp was was outlining. I, I agree with Klopp. There's something problematic about only kicking up a fuss about something once it becomes impossible to ignore. When actually there's a responsibility to be more tuned into things before they've got this far, and we're trying to close the door after the horse has bolted. Right. So you, you can acknowledge that it's terrible, but you might think, well, the terrible thing has already happened, 
And what we really should have done is many years ago when it was first given to Qatar, there should have been a big protest movement and things. There was there was a lot of discussion of it, but not the level of discussion we've got now. But now it's now it's kind of too late really to be making a big difference. And I think the simple reason there wasn't as much of a movement is it was years away and it was a really abstract thing. And these things only feel more real once you know, your football players are actually going to go there and uh, kick a ball around on the stadiums that have been built by workers who are oppressed and work in dangerous conditions and so on. You know, those things make it more real, but actually the problems were right there at the at the beginning and should have been picked up on more. So, but I, but I also I also uh, recognise your worries with um, with Klopp. Just because it would have been better to do it earlier doesn't mean it's wrong to do something now. Right? It would have been ideal to to have a coordinated protest movement many years ago, but that doesn't mean that we should just uh, not worry about it now because it's too late. I think there are still real things we could be doing. <clears throat> was he saying that we shouldn't worry about it now, full stop, or was he saying to put a special pressure on people whose livelihoods and whose you know professional identities are part of this structure that has produced these obligations for them is so that that's a that's a bit of a different thing it's saying you know that these players and coaches and commentators and things have accrued obligations because the structure has brought them to this point and then asking them to sub- suddenly sort of resign or not go or whatever is is just it, it, it's 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 an unreasonable request at that at that point i mean i well, he wasn't saying that we should nobody should complain i take it i guess we want to avoid you know the imaginary moment where qatar and fifa say phew we got away with it the numbers were great uh, we got everything out of this World Cup we wanted to. And in a way, at least for us, that justifies the means that produce this end. So we, we don't want that. And of course, we all recognise the ugliness and the undesirability of that. But the thing is, that's forward-looking. We can do something to thwart FIFA and the ambitions of the Qatari regime going forward. We can put increasing pressure on them. on Qatar to treat its workers more humanely. And in fact, there have been some steps over the last few years uh, to that end, perhaps to adopt a more liberal regime. I mean, a point I read somewhere was that if we want to give the World Cup to uh, countries that aren't just ordinary liberal regimes, in order to expose them to international norms then the World Cup has to be played there, right? So the the idea is there's a kind of liberal current to which these countries are newly exposed because the eyes of the world are on them. They can no longer go about their business as a kind of conservative Muslim nation. But that all presupposes that the World Cup is played there and we can do other things um, to avoid the we got away with it moment. So that's forward-looking. Yeah, it is the case that you know it's too late to do something now um, to watch the World Cup. But I suppose what, um, but we again, I think we can watch the World Cup without endorsing everything that went into producing it. That, I think that's 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 the other side of this debate, and that that's at the heart, I think, of the of the kind of recoiling response. If I watch this and I'm somehow endorsing everything that 
was packed into producing it. And I and I, I think we can avoid that. And maybe that was part of Klopp's point. Tom and then Martin and then Lucy. Yes, I think it's important that maybe the World Cup is doing some good in Qatar. It's difficult to kind of measure how much good or whether that good's going to last. Maybe we can only kind of see that when we look retrospectively in a few years' time. Um, but I think maybe it's helpful to think about what would have happened if the World Cup hadn't been given to Qatar. So the country that came second was the United States. Um, they put in a good bid. It seemed like a logical place for, for the World Cup to go. If you think about what would have happened if it had gone to the US, well, Qatar would have still had a terrible human rights record uh, and it wouldn't have been discussed as much as it is now. It might have actually been even worse because it was less uh, under the gaze of the world. Qatar would have done less construction, obviously, but they still would have done a huge amount of construction. There's massive amounts of construction going on in Qatar independently of the World Cup. So there still would have been this terrible situation for, for workers and working under terrible conditions and often losing their lives. There would have been fewer migrant workers going to Qatar, but that doesn't necessarily make things better. Um, so I heard a, a useful statistic, which is that many of the migrant workers coming from countries like India, for example, the mortality rate among the same demographic in India is even worse if they stay and work in India than if they go to Qatar. Right? So overall, it seems like the world would have been an even worse place had the World Cup gone to the US. So what exactly are we complaining about? And my worry is maybe what we're complaining about is that it's too close to home and that it's ruining our enjoyment of the telly rather than actually objecting to FIFA making the world a worse place, right? They haven't. They've made the world probably a fractionally better place by doing this, but they've done so in a way that is making us uncomfortable. I mean, there, I guess it, it, it's worth it's worth pulling pulling apart maybe one view that, that would say, well, look, it, it in general, it's going to be a good thing to try and try and have uh, sporting tournaments in regimes that might have various sorts of problems that you think the very fact of them then hosting that that tournament is going to have a, a kind of beneficial effect. As against another view that might say, well, look, that 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 might not actually, you know, that that might be naive or that you know that that might not actually be that effective a, a means of, of trying to create that kind of change. And anyway, it might be the case that because of reasons of complicity and the, the kind of moral moral entanglement involved in actually cooperating with, with regimes like that, that, there might be reason not to do that. But nevertheless, given given that this has happened, right, given that this did happen in, in, in 2010, thinking about, you know, the, the, the points at which Qatar's hosting of this tournament can be used as a way to kind of, and, and has been used, as it has been said, as a way to kind of push it towards somewhat better labour practices, somewhat better uh, treatment of its of its migrant workers, somewhat more kind of less kind of a, a oppressive um, overall orientation. I, I think you could think that there was something very valuable in doing that, even if you didn't think that that in general um, it made sense to to cite. Uh, to cite tournaments in in a liberal in a liberal country, so I, I mean, I I suppose you know it, it, even if everything Tom says is right about you know what what would have happened in the the counterfactual world where there was just a, a very sort of standard uh, you know World Cup USA twenty twenty two, I mean, what one might think that you know that purely consequentialist way of thinking about what's at stake there, you know, would wouldn't in the end be be right, but but that's consistent with thinking that given that given that this has happened. The degree to which actually there has been, you know, a, a backlash. There, there has been ways in which 
things have backfired for the the Qataris. It has, you know, it, it has brought them more under un, under scrutiny in various ways. And maybe that wasn't something that kind of fed into their the calculations of anyone involved when that decision was made. But any, any small role that that any of us can have in, in in sort of contributing towards that process now, you know, might might nevertheless be valuable, even if it wouldn't have justified the decision uh, initially. The, the, the sort of doing the calculations of losses and benefits doesn't seem to make sense to me of the kind of, you know, S- Simon has decided he's not going to watch. I mean, I want to talk about deciding not to watch and then watching, but we'll come, maybe come back to that. But Simon decided not to watch and... And the the description of it was much more, it wasn't that I've done a cost-benefit analysis and I've decided that actually my not watching is going. It was it was what Gerald called the recoil. It was something like the the fun that it's not nice anymore. It's it's blood it's it's a sunset. It's like looking at a beautiful building and you're thinking, wow, and then somebody says, There's the blood of five hundred workers in, you know, in the soil beneath it. It's not nice to look at anymore. It's lost its. It's become sort of somehow morally tainted, which is a sort of old-fashioned, strange idea. But that seems to make much more sense of the way Simon described his his. So it wasn't it wasn't because you want to play a role in a solidarity movement because you said I don't really mind what other people do, and it wasn't strategic. So I, I, th- I just think that's an interesting response. I think it's a really important response, actually, to to uh, problematic things, and that's why it's not it's not relevant that that you know the working practices in India might be as worse, or but it's it's in these very buildings where we're going to cheer on these very athletes. There, it, people died unnecessarily for that. I was just thinking, I mean, what, one one element of this is that World Cup about to happen is a fait accompli. These things have already taken place. The migrant workers have already been mistreated. Many of them have died. There's nothing that normal people can do about that. So one thought might be, um, might as well, I, I wasn't responsible for that. I, I wouldn't have signed off on that had I been given the opportunity to. But I didn't. I didn't bring it about nothing I can do, I might as well watch the World Cup. I wonder how safe that thought is. Now, I mean, we, we can imagine, so to take an imaginary case, imagine that, say, the Saudis tried to syndicate a kind of TV program featuring the live execution of adulterers, right? Let's say that that was somehow syndicated. And I could decide to watch it. Now, I could say, look, I didn't devise policies, I wouldn't enforce it. Given the opportunity, I wouldn't be executing anyone for adultery, but not up to me, so I can watch it. There's nothing wrong with watching it. It's a human interest, pretty grisly, but human interest. What would we say about that person? I think we'd find that person pretty contemptible. I, I would. Why? Because, and here, I think the, the complicity route is this. It, by watching it, you are upholding the idea that these executions are a suitable form of public entertainment. You know, you're, 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 you are buying into that, regardless of what you say. Now, is it the same for the World Cup? Are you buying into the kind of trail of destruction and abuse and mistreatment that has led 
to this World Cup being a reality. I find that less compelling, actually, because at the end of the day, what you're watching is the football. The football, yes, the matches played in these very stadiums are possible because those stadiums were, you know, built on the blood, sweat and tears of mistreated migrant workers. But uh, you're not kind of, I don't think you're complicitous with this idea that thereby you are kind of endorsing or that you're thinking that the blood, sweat and tears of the migrant workers are also a kind of form of entertainment or a a necessary means to securing entertainment. I, I find that less compelling so yeah just 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 a thought but can i just come so i i agree gerald i was just it's making sense of simon's very personal reaction is that that was the but i actually agree i don't think i don't think someone who watch you know let's say england gets the semi-finals and somebody just 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 desperately wants to watch the match (laughs) That 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 somehow the enjoyment that they then get out of it is 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 sort of morally ugly in some way. Yeah. In the way that watching watching the executions obviously right. would be, but but I think it is very easy to 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 sort of it just depends on 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 how you see the match. But I do think people who are thinking, I won't watch it for very personal reasons, they're thinking it won't feel fun. It yeah. won't, it'll feel ugly. I, I can see that. But look, can I ask, Simon, can I ask you a direct mm-hmm. question? So I, I believe you yeah. when you say that you're not going to think worse of us if we watch the matches, though you're not going to watch the matches. Okay, but it's not, it's not, purely personal is it i mean your personal decision uh you know you're a reflective guy <laughs> you're, you're 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 a philosopher you know that these this personal kind of policy is moralized it has a moral character to it so can i ask you why don't you think that about us i mean you might not say it because you don't want to disrupt your friendships and your social relationships and you've got to choose the hills on which you die and pick your battles and so on but I mean why don't you think that actually you're right Gerald perhaps I should just reveal it I hate all of you (laughs) um no so so I think actually I mean Lucy's hit on on it actually articulated it quite well there was and in fact to use your word Gerald at the start that recoil you know just reading you know so many things uh, on amnesty and, and and news websites about what's happened it just doesn't sit right with me to watch this even though I think you're right that there is a difference between your imagined uh, execution syndicated tv show uh, and 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 watching the the, the world the world cup um, um so I think that I mean so so remember so I, I distinguish between those people, such as Martin, who's making some form of sacrifice, who notices there's something bad going on, and then there's something that they're doing, even though it might be small, but together, you know, who knows, it might build up into something if many people do it. But then, then the sort of person who goes, well, I've read about all this stuff, but really it doesn't matter at all. I'm just going to watch the World Cup and enjoy it. You know, people like Kirchin, they're just these highfalutin philosophers. It's just a comforting Western prejudice, the phrase I used at the start. It doesn't matter at all. We'll just watch it and enjoy it. That's very. Those are, those are two very different stances. So that that person I've just described, that person I would feel 
very morally uh, mixed about it. In fact, I mean, I, I, I'd be judging them and saying, look, there's something bad going on here. And in fact, just to just to put it back on my myself, I mean, I mentioned the the Russian World Cup in 2018, which of course, as we know, was awarded at the same time as the Qatari one. And there've been concerns about the the award to to Russia. There were there were problems about human rights, as we know, in Russia. And at the time, and far less was made of it at the time. But of course, they had already this this curious word that I've commented on before. They have they had annexed Crimea in Ukraine. Now, putting those things together, actually, now then looking back on my enjoyment and watching of the Russian World Cup in 2018. I mean, I was aware of these things, but perhaps uh, my senses. You know, reflecting now on the Qatari World Cup and my attitude to that, my senses should have been a bit more attuned and a bit more sharpened watching the 2018 World Cup. I mean, certainly I didn't watch anything in the Chinese Olympics, which is unusual for me as well. Nothing at all. I didn't even know what happened um, for, for various reasons in China. I mean, there's an interesting question. We might come on to the next part. So I do have some some distinctions here. So I think if people are kind of noticing it's happening, are aware of it, and they're kind of feeling uncomfortable and doing something, then, then that, that's fine. It, it's the people who kind of know all about it and don't do anything at all and it doesn't change their behaviour or their attitudes in the slightest, then I'm kind of, you know, going beyond the personal and, and having a bit of moralising, uh, Gerald. Tom, why don't you come back and you've been wanting me for a while. Yeah, yeah, it feels like there's a distinction emerging between saying somebody shouldn't enjoy watching it and saying yeah. somebody can't enjoy watching it. And the yeah. intersection between those gets a bit tricky when the reason you can't enjoy watching it is because of some background moral stuff yeah um so i think there's been some other cases lately where people have felt similarly but on a smaller scale so think about all the scandals that have come out about um awful hollywood actors right and then it becomes quite difficult to watch the films that they're in so i now can't enjoy a kevin spacey film but i don't know that i can do the further thing of saying you shouldn't enjoy a kevin spacey film and if you're able to sit through the usual suspects and not mind that you're a a bad person or something so Simon, I wonder if that's a bit more analogous to to what you're feeling there. It's just it, personally, you just can't sit down and enjoy the football anymore, like I can't sit that da- sit down and enjoy a Kevin Spacey film anymore. But I'm not trying to make a kind of universalizable moral yeah, claim. That's, that's that's helpful, actually, Tom. Uh, Martin, why don't you I, I think that that's a very interesting question to Simon, right? And does does raise the issue of. of are we getting from Simon here mere description of, of what he can and can't enjoy, or is this actually a, a more substantive moral judgment? If, it, if it's just the former, then we, we might we, we might think that you know that that's kind of uh, of less less sort of normative interest. But but of course, you can only interpret that in terms of, of, of the kind of broader network of moral moral beliefs there. But I suppose I, I just want to push a little bit this this consistency point so as we know i mean even thinking about um about the uh kind of financing from highly illiberal middle eastern regimes uh, you know percolates now through through european football so uh newcastle united is is owned by the the saudi uh sovereign wealth fund um so you know if we watch our own our own teams play play against newcastle um, or you know, God, God forbid, if any of us were actually a, a Newcastle supporter, you know, there, there there are issues there about whether about whether you know even watching stuff in the in the the Premier League would be justifiable anymore. And of course, Paris Saint Germain are owned by the the Qatari um, 
sovereign wealth fund. And in fact, the very fact that they are might connect back to the various sorts of deals done over um, over the 2010 uh, bid and, and the fact that uh, the French may well have, have welcomed that kind of large, large investment. So I, I, I suppose that this is a little bit a, a question for Simon, whether whether it's the World Cup special here, or actually, have have you have you got a more a kind of broader position that actually also means that you're you're not going to watch a, a Champions League game with with PSG and you're not going to watch a Premier League game with uh, with Newcastle United. Uh, good questions, Martin. So the answer to that actually is yes. So I I I, I don't want watch PSG. And I don't want Newcastle. So in fact, I've got two friends here at the university who are kind of ardent Newcastle fans. And again, I mean, I'm not going out to condemn them or or judge any Newcastle fans, you know, certainly not, not my friends, because in a way, so as we know, you kind of, you choose your team or your team chooses you often and you're born into it, right? And so there you are, you're found because there's deals done with high finance and you find that your team has been bought by some um, morally dubious regime, but you feel still drawn to support that team because it's it's part of your life. I mean, it goes back to what Lucy was saying right at the start. It's It's, you know, for many people, it's part of who they identify. As I mean, again, I, I'm you know thinking about my friends who are Newcastle fans. They feel very, very morally um, uh, conflicted, um, and they will do certain things in relation to it. But they still want to have something to do with their team as they see it. And I know many Newcastle fans feel like that. But of course, at the time it was taken over, there were loads of other Newcastle fans who were you know very much welcoming the money uh, and so on. And that was very, I mean, highly distasteful indeed morally distasteful i mean i'm a wolf fan as as some of you as some of you know and, and they're owned by Fosun, which is a chinese company i feel quite quite conflicted about I, that um, I, I i did go to uh to arsenal newcastle last season and there was a man there brandishing a, a saudi flag and, and sort of waving it during during the game which i mean i think that, that that's a pretty straightforward case of very low moral standards that someone would sort of <laughs> Go, go yeah. you know, be so easily bought and so so lacking in self respect that uh, <laughs> that uh, you know some some money to their club and then they're right. I'll, I'll sign up for for whatever. Didn't yeah. didn't Newcastle win that game? Uh, no, uh, no, 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 they didn't. It was oh, uh, never mind. Well, I went yeah. to see Spurs Newcastle uh, a few weeks ago and we lost. But um, I do think the moral distinction is important between you know following your team despite your moral qualms about the owners and actually celebrating the ownership and that's something that yeah. happened with Newcastle was uncomfortable people yeah. you know hailing these heroes because of the massive amounts of money they're bringing to the club uh, and I think that that's on a different level to just watching the game or watching the World Cup or something that's quite different yeah, absolutely uh, Simon another question for you um what if you okay there's two things going on you feel bad or conflicted and you do something about it or you do what you can yeah Let's say you don't do anything, but you feel bad about it. So you feel a little bit, you know, um, there's, a, there's a feeling of discomfort in you as you troop off to the stadium to watch your team that's owned by some dodgy people. But that's it. I mean, w- w- would that be enough? Just, just, just anything to kind of puncture the, you know, the, the serenity of your enjoyment of the game? So, um, I mean, it depends as, as, uh, just to bring in a bit of technical jargon, everyone. So as some of you know, I'm a particularist rather than a generalist when it comes to moral principles. And it really depends on the situation, right? But I mean, uh, across the course of a season or a life watching sport, 
it, I don't think it would be enough for someone in every instance of their team playing to say, well, I'm going to watch them, but I'm, I'm going to feel conflicted, uh, but I'm, in the end I'm not going to do anything about it. Then I'd feel, well, there's something going on there which which isn't sticking, right? But in every single instance, perhaps not because, you know, you've done quite a lot, but, you know, here's a, a weekend and you go and see, you know, your team who might be owned by some dodgy owners and you just go along with it and, you know, there, there we go. So I, I don't think it, I'm, I'm not going to be hard and fast about it. Uh, Lucy, do you want to come back in? Um, so I, I, I've asked people if they're going to watch the World Cup and and a friend of mine said to me, well, I've, I've decided not to, but I probably will if, you know, England get through to the quarterfinals or whatever. And I, I think that's a really sort of interesting case. And obviously there's something a little bit irrational. We're not being resolute if we but, – but we all make decisions that we think we'll probably fail to. You know, I'm going to a party. I'm going to have one glass of white wine, but I probably won't. So, so I, I and I actually think, I mean, obviously, there's something morally problematic about someone who does that. But it's sort of it's somehow better than the person who goes, "Yeah, I'm just going to watch all of it." And and this, I, I sort of also strangely because I think sport is this sort of. You know, people's love of football sort of just delights me in in a certain ways. The idea that somebody just won't be able to resist. You know, they've set up a moral stance. They've seen into. They, they think they're doing the right thing, and then they're just going to be drawn by sheer passion for the game back back in. In a way, overall, I kind I kind of I think that's a very intelligible attitude towards one's future but it's obviously a bit inconsistent and there's there's something just interestingly a sort of moral psychology perspective interesting about making decisions which you predict that you'll fail to realize um is that would that be eased lucy by someone who felt bad about that right so you can you can have a policy then you just abandon it so you know you tune into the quarterfinals. You can or change your policy, yeah. Yeah, you just change your policy, but but there's a difference between that psychologically, at least, and between saying, "Well, I still have the same policy. Um, I am weak. I'm going to tune into the quarters." That, that seems to say better things about them. At least they're feeling bad about it. <laughs> yeah, but you've got to be careful with that one. I mean, that's that's like Amos's rake hell, right? Who who goes out and and sleeps with someone he oughtn't to and then comes back feeling deeply regretful and then is very proud of himself for feeling deeply regretful. So, you know, you can't build in to the, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to decide not to watch it, and then my, you know, my appetite will draw me into watching it anyway, but it'll be all right because I'll feel really guilty about it after that. <laughs> I mean, you sort of want them to feel guilty when it happens, but it can't be... Yeah, right. I mean, in that case, and in a way, you don't. So, so I think I think there's an interesting question about how we think about, yeah, regret. yeah. That, that seems right. I mean, it looks like the guilt or regret of being kind of weaponized by the agent to just give them a license to do what they're going to do anyway. That that that's probably an unusual employment for guilt and regret. I mean, you know, if you feel guilty or regretful, 
then that's supposed to reflect the judgment that you shouldn't have done that. It shouldn't be called Mm -hmm. upon as a resource for renewing that kind of behaviour again and again. The road to hell, Gerald, is paved with good intentions. Don't I know it? (laughs) I mean, there is something that we've discussed that might change my mind if we're talking about changing minds, although I probably won't. And that's, that's Tom's... Uh, stats earlier on about comparison uh, between you know what's happened with the migrant workers in in Qatar and in, in India that, and, and other stats like that because I mean what what we've just been talking about is just changing our mind because you know our favourite team has got through to the quarterfinals despite despite us thinking that they wouldn't and we get we're worried we're going to miss out on something whereas. Um, you know, Tom's uh, kind of evidence is of a different sort. It gets to the heart of what was what was morally problematic in the in the first place. Uh, but go on, Martin. Do you want to come in on that? So I, I'm a bit worried about where where Tom's line of of reasoning might might lead us. I guess, okay, because I suppose if you think in general about about forms of of economic exploitation. Uh, there's the very mm-hmm. telling remark that you know the only thing worse than being exploited by a capitalist. It's not being exploited by a capitalist because the very fact about exploit, you know, the, the central feature of exploitation is that one of the parties to this transaction has very little power. It's in a very, has very bad outside options and therefore is going to accept, you know, a terrible deal because the alternative is even, even worse. And so I think if, if we take that kind of broadly consequentialist view to, to, you know, what kinds of, transactions might be justifiable and 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 what our view about um about our involvement in a a sort of network of of transactions might be uh if if we follow that then that might for example uh lead us to being very very relaxed about sweatshops because you know most uh, you know people working in sweatshops are doing that precisely because they're in a very powerless position their outside options are very bad and therefore they'll accept uh, they'll accept those those very poor employment conditions, very very poor wages, because because the alternative is is even worse. So I I, I think there's we need to be a bit a bit careful there about about thinking about the counterfactual and, and about thinking you know for example how how badly off those workers would have been without those jobs in in Qatar because you know clearly there was a you know, there was another counterfactual, presumably, where Qatar got the World Cup under very stringent conditions, where there was involvement from the the ILO and the the ITUC, and where there was a huge kind of improvement in in working conditions, and that changed how how things were done. Um, you know, throughout throughout that that part of the world in terms of the treatment of migrant workers, and clearly that you know that didn't happen, and maybe that was something that you know that that those involved with football federations with the you know the governments in in other places could have pushed towards and you know that that didn't happen so the the mere fact that we're we're sort of that we've had a an outcome that's better than the counter factual baseline of you know just what would have happened otherwise maybe doesn't tell us all that much about um about what what would have been justifiable there yeah tom why don't you come back yeah yeah so I, i definitely don't want to go full consequentialist here so i I definitely don't want to argue like this, right? It would be even worse if the World Cup wasn't hosted in Qatar, therefore it's fine that it is, right? I think that would be a a bad argument for all the reasons you give there. What I think about, though, is that if things would have been even worse if the World Cup hadn't gone to Qatar, why object to this, right? If If terrible working conditions are an atrocious thing, 
why aren't we objecting to all of that? Why aren't we talking about everything? You know, we're tied up with a global economy and the world is a deeply unjust place. You could say the world is broken and the World Cup is just this minuscule manifestation of it. And suddenly we're going to object to that minuscule manifestation rather than doing everything we can to sort out these global problems. So I think that that's why I think the counterfactual is relevant, not because I want to take a consequentialist line, but because I want to raise the worry that there's something arbitrary about picking up on the World Cup rather than picking up on all these other things that we're indirectly complicit in. Well, I, I mean, I just want to say we just, I think we we do morally care about, you know, what was the means to some outcome, the actual means to some outcome. You know, that seems to make a difference if you... Some people were killed for this event. The counterfactuals sort of that that's already morally relevant, whatever the counterfactuals are. Um, so, so I just I, I wanted to make that point. But I also think there is something morally arbitrary. I mean, in a way, what you get thinking about the World Cup is with the sorts of thoughts that Martin was articulating that in general we operate in a system where we are constantly getting benefits from other people's pain, whether it's, I mean, there was the thing about the Amazon worker being regulated, the 63-year-old being regulated about how, how fast he, he, he was unpacking boxes and things like that. So we're all, we're all living on other people's pain and trying to minimize that and trying to, and what's, I think, very so it's arbitrary but very morally helpful <laughs> when you have a single one-off event. I mean, it's like a sort of it's it's a thought experiment, and it happened. It's a you know it's a single one-off event with traceable decision point where various structures are identifiable. The decision makers are identifiable. The means, of course, we don't really know what went went into the decision, but I think it's it's sort of arbitrary but heuristically really important to give these cases a, attention so the, the kind of like we don't have to think about this because you know we th- if we think about this we might be able to be clearer about other more diffuse broader cases yeah i mean well there seems to be truth on both sides uh, he said wisely um so, I mean, on, 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 the one, on the one hand if the spotlight is on qatar then it seems like a disingenuous reply to say that. Don't worry about our abuses. What about all the other abuses? What about the system? That's, that's um, unacceptably evasive. So that, that seems right. But on the other hand, I think I agree with Tom that if it's true that, well, and, and Martin's right, that you know individual instances of, of exploitation are puzzling because though we object to them, they do tend to benefit uh, the exploited party if only because uh, the exploited party will lack better alternatives. If that's the case, then it's also surprising that our spotlight should, you know, generally fasten on those individual instances, because the problem is the background. It's the lack of alternatives. It's the, it's the way the, the more general system is set up to deprive people of better opportunities. If that's the case, then perhaps, you know, individual sweatshops are not an entirely suitable focus for moral and political examination. We need to do something else. Now, you need to start somewhere. You need some into the system. You need 
specific or concrete apertures. And so we're going to want to protest against, you know, specific workshops or specific uh, employers, I guess. We can't just say, oh, it's in the system. If it's, if it's in the system, where do we start? Where would we start? It's a, it's a whole system. It's everyone. And that will give us no way into it. Um, at the same time, it looks as though the specific apertures into the system that we choose and focus on should be uh, with a view to correct something more general, something more systemic. And if that's the case, there's only so there's only so much distance we can travel by looking at specific abuses. It seems to me uh, the individual interaction is just less interesting. It's it, it's it's everything else. I wonder if it has the consequence that any, any honest attempt to kind of intervene in the system, the systemic injustices, is going to feel arbitrary because you can only ever. <laughs> take a particular aperture as you put it right and that doesn't mean you're doing something wrong by somehow not doing everything at once maybe that's just all you can do because you've got to pick something relatively arbitrary just to chip away at it because the alternative is not doing anything and that's definitely no good yeah so just picking up on on that thought and taking us in a slightly different direction just as a as a last part of our uh, discussion so i suppose there's, there's a broader question here which is the mixture of sport and politics right politics but both interpreted quite broadly, particularly politics when it comes to the, the economic issues we've, we've been, been thinking about in the geopolitical scene. And, I mean, one would like to have sport as very pure and we just enjoy the sport, but it seems inevitable in this world that sport and politics do mix and we're, and we're aware of it. Uh, I'm just, you know, there's that age-old question, should sport and politics mix? Can we avoid them not mixing? What should be our attitude to general you know the relationship between sport and politics how do we how, how do we do here without you know to, to use tom's word without just seeming arbitrary right so martin why don't you come back on? so uh, i'm always puzzled by this thought that that, that suggests that, uh-huh. that that it could be somehow an ideal for, for sports and politics to be kept apart i mean sport has always been completely suffused in, in politics and and how could it be otherwise i mean it, you know politics in in this broad sense right of, of how how it is that that people live together, the the structures of our of our societies, the interactions between different countries. How, how on earth could could this not you know completely suffuse sport the whole time? And you know, look, looking at the the, the history of, of of the World Cup or the history of the Olympics, it, it's it, it's a political history that, and unavoidably so that you know that these aren't new new problems. So um, so I I I think. You know, one one way in which you know it's been really interesting thinking about you know how some of these issues have been thought about over the last few years. You know, maybe especially in in the UK that that you see you know a, a more a more sort of explicitly political stance from from players and from those involved in the game from you know for, from some commentators and, and, and pundits and so on. There's been a lot of of good done by by the 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 protagonists in, in actually sort of using using their their position to actually talk about uh, you know the, the issues around child hun- hunger that uh, Marcus Rashford were, were, was talking about, or some of the issues are, are around uh, racism that have been that have been uh, addressed. 
And I think that that can only be a good thing. And it's just an acknowledgement of an unavoidable fact that, that of course, this this big kind of momentous human human activity is going to connect to lots of other forms of, of human activity. And, and it couldn't be any other way. That, and, and, and sort of facing that head on rather than thinking that, that that's something that could be sort of denied or, or shifted off, off stage, I think it can only be a good thing. So I, th- I think it's interesting in, th- in thinking thinking of this question about whether to watch in terms of the sort of boycotts that you saw against South African teams, for example, thinking of it as a boycott. And then, and then in a way, the question comes up, like, why aren't we? There are, there are nations in the world that, you know, imprison people. And I gather in Qatar, if you're Muslim and gay, you could be executed. <laughs> What, why? So there, are, there is a sort of significant population in a number of countries that just lack fundamental rights. So I th- in a way, the question is why? Why don't we boycott these places more? Why don't we? Why don't we have just as we had a sort of, you know, if you if you determine voting rights on the basis of skin color, then we're not going to play with you. If you treat people in the LGTB community in this way, we're not going to play with you. So I, I think there's a sort of it's it's interesting kind of the the I mean it's but the things have become bundled up anyway. That that's a sort of question is there's a sort of broader boycott question, um, which is different from from the sort of the blood in the stadiums. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> these are interesting points. I mean, so I think. <laughs> to the question, I mean, I, I agree with Martin that, that, you know, sports and politics go together. They always have. Sports people have a platform. They can do good with it. They have a kind of political significance. Governments exploit the successes of their um, sporting teams. That's all true. It's always been true. But Lucy's question was, why don't we do it more? Why, why couldn't we extend certain boycotts in order to, you know, as a form of leverage against governments to reform policies? <coughs> Sorry, make them more liberal. But um, but that presupposes that they're not as mixed as they might be, and that, and that's kind of interesting. I think. Yeah, come on, Tom. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of with what everyone else has said here, but I think I think it's important that the neutrality of sports is kind of a political thing in its own right. So you could kind of justify in a political way by saying, wouldn't it be politically good if there was a space where we could all just get together as humans and not worry about the politics, right? So I'm kind of reminded of that story, which I always hope isn't apocryphal, of um, the soldiers in the trenches on Christmas Day. They stop fighting and start playing football. There's this. It's not a coincidence that it's a sport, right? Um, that there's something about the way that sport can bring people together and allow them to kind of forget political divisions that is a politically good thing. So if the argument is don't ruin sport with politics, I wouldn't be very convinced. But if it's like don't ruin the distinctive political quality of sport, which is its capacity to be neutral and bring us together, then I think the argument might be more compelling. Yeah, that's a nice thought, actually, Tom. Uh, Lucy? I think that's right. But there's, there is something glorious about everyone setting aside their differences to play. I mean, that's, you know, that's the thing. That's the thing about a game with shared rules, and it's it's precisely non-culturally specific. It's precisely morally neutral in lots of ways, and that's that's a sort of marvelous 
human invention. But I think, you know, if you're thinking about sort of what then, who's on the field and what the costs are to each person on the field, that one of the things we need to, that we haven't actually raised here is what it would be like if you uh, were a gay member of a team or if you were part of the coaching staff or so, you know, Pivac or Southgate have got to take their teams with them. They might now think, oh, there are members of my flock <laughs> that are particularly vulnerable. Now, there'll always be people that are particularly vulnerable, but I'm taking them into a dangerous environment. So I think we haven't really thought of the, I mean, I think of the kind of when we gave up smoking, well, you know, there are sort of rights that employees have that they're going to now be, be contravened in a way. They can't go to work safely with their own identity. So I think there's just an interesting question about whether that could turn out to, to be a sort of spanner in the works of, of uh, regimes that... And, and Qatar haven't said, we won't lock you up if you're found sleeping with the same-sex partner. So, yeah, so there's a thought. Maybe employees' rights will, will be the route, as that so often is, the route to changing things. I, th- I, th- I think I agree with Tom that there's something distinctive about sport. I mean, sport has a certain power, and its power depends on its not always being used as a you know to leverage as a lever for political change, right? So, if sport was merely a kind of a weapon or a tool of scolding, then it would be less powerful, right? It, it, it has the power it has because there's some element of it that is that refuses to be merged into the political. Now, we we know that there are lots of connections between them. Um, because sport is exploited by governments, because different things we do in sport can make a difference. So, so th- that's absolutely right. But, but its power to do so, I think, is dependent upon you know maintaining some degree of separateness between what happens on the sports field and what happens in politics. And it seems like there's kind of diminishing returns as well, that when sports does do a bit of politics, the more it does, the less impact it has. So I think that's been one of the worries with um, players taking the knee against racism, right? That, that That's a big deal in a in a space that um, is avowedly non-political, right? That's, that's really changing the rules and saying this is a big deal. But then the more it happened, the less impact it has. And some players notably complain that it's making it routine in a way that's actually quite insulting it's just something that's built into the program and pays lip service to the to the problem and doesn't really achieve anything so maybe the more political we make sport the less effective that will be it's a it's a strategy that could only work in the short term thanks everyone that's a really uh, interesting set of discussions one last quick question before we draw things to a close has anyone got any predictions for the world cup argentina i reckon i always say brazil and they usually don't do it, but I, I, I'm saying Brazil. I, I, I'm, I'm going to just sort of uh, stick my neck out and, and have the kind of triumph of, of hope over realism and say that finally this will be England's time again to, to win the world. I'm not predicting. I mean, I would say Brazil just because I know they've won it more than anyone else and I don't know enough to predict, but I do, I, I would go with a, yeah, a faith-based answer. <laughs> <laughs> 
which is partly because I'm so fascinated with this. You know, one of my, I love the film 66, where, you know, there's this kid having a bar mitzvah and everyone. So I'm fascinated in the sort of trumping power of a match, either England or Wales, getting sort of high enough in the competition. So if if England were in the final, then I think it's this, there is something puzzling and amazing about the fact that it just sort of trumps all other activities. Whether it will on this occasion, I think, is is interesting. But just as the, the social phenomena of the trumping power of a final yeah. when your nation's involved is... Yeah, although the enduring image I have when we got when England got to the final of the of the last Euros was the Martin's laughing. Martin probably going to predict what I'm going to say is the guy outside Wembley Stadium who stuck a flare up his uh, leg. Makes you proud to be British. It does make me proud to be British. Whatever else happens, I really hope England don't win it because I won't watch it. <laughs> but there we are. That's really mean. It is, it is really mean, but I that but there we are. personal decision. That's, that's right. Like, that's FOMO taken to me. <laughs> but even yeah. when you get to a final and lose, I mean, the Euros was... It, you know, it's just an amazing thing, the, sort of the outpour of mourning that goes on. Right. Yeah, yeah, um, but but of course the women's team did make up for it uh, yes, early this year, right. which was exactly. fantastic. Right, okay, we should draw things to a close. Um, in the end, we didn't. The, the conversation flowed, and we didn't even have a break. So I couldn't even use my joke about it being an episode of two hearts. <laughs> never mind. Uh, perhaps I'll save it for for twenty twenty six. Anyway, we should thank our guests for giving up their time and thoughts to us. So, Gerald, thanks for coming on. Thanks very much, Simon. And Tom, thanks to you. Thank you. Uh, Martin, thanks for coming on for your first yeah, episode. Yeah, thanks very much. That, that was fun. Thank you. Uh, and Lucy, thanks to you as well. Thanks, Simon. Good luck with finding other things <laughs> to do. I'm sure, I'm sure I'll be able to find... I think you'll manage the real reason I'm not going to watch it is that I've got, you know, too busy. You know, I'm too busy. I've got, I've got, you know, a book to work on. But there we are. Right, and thank you for listening to this episode of Philosophy Takes on the News. Hope you enjoy the World Cup and all being well. We'll see you soon for another episode.